Good morning. You know how I am about titles. I'm going to stick with one I've got, but some baseball-themed titles did come to my mind. James and John make their pitch and strike out. Or they try for a grand slam, and it wasn't so grand, they just got slammed. But anyway, there's lots of those possibilities, and we'll pass them by. Lesson 21 in our study of the Gospel of Mark, and we're in chapter 10. I told you last week that Jeanette and I had been uh, in Longview at Letourneau University, and uh, when we were there, uh, we ate in the cafeteria, and it was a beautiful day. We went um, and and, uh, got over to the cafeteria after a, a bit of a walk across campus, and uh, there was a line that had already formed that was trailing out the door, and so Jeanette and I went to the back of the line. It was a nice day, and waiting wasn't such a bad thing. But one of the faculty or the staff who had been assigned as a kind of a host to us, uh, it came just about that time, and he saw us at the back of the line, and he gets a hold of us, and he brings us up and walks us past all the students and in the door and to the front of the line. And uh, I have to confess, I don't really mind that too much. Uh, waiting in line, I don't think, is any of our particularly favorite task. But the students understood that was uh, something expected, so there weren't any grumblings or protests or throwing a milk container at you or any of that kind of stuff. But we've been some places where cutting in line is just a part of the culture. I know uh, in in uh, one particular place where we were, we were just amazed at an airport that that you could stand there and be very close to the person in front of you and somebody would just come and just squeeze in. And, and it was like, you know, tough. And uh, when you're in another part of the world, you generally don't make an issue of that, although you don't really like it. James and John are basically trying to get cuts, wouldn't you say? They're trying to cut in line in front of their fellow uh, disciples in our text. And obviously, it is not received well. You'll notice that there are actually uh, two requests that are made. Uh, the request of James and John in our text. And, uh, and the last part of the text, the request of Bartimaeus. What's interesting is that the request of James and John is denied. The request of Bartimaeus is granted. And you have to ask why. Why is that so? In fact, if you're looking to connect dots between these events, there are two questions that are almost identical. The question is, what do you want me to do for you? James and John had the wrong wrong answer. But Bartimaeus was right. And so I would suggest to you that when we come to the matter of our prayer life, and there are many others dealt with in this text, uh, it really matters whether we're on the right wavelength or not, whether or not we're connecting the dots as we should. And uh, when we don't connect the dots, our prayers are going to, I think, by and large, be set aside. Now, one of the things I want to say to you, and I've, I've, I've done this over and over in all the years, and that is we come to the Scriptures with a kind of stained glass 
uh, view of things, and we want to sanctify people that aren't always sanctified. Uh, you know some of my favorites uh, in the Bible, Jonah being one of those. But in in this text, you got to take off the rose-colored glasses. James and John are part of the inner circle of Jesus, granted, okay? Got that part. But they are jerks in our text. In fact, they are Jacob-level jerks. These guys are trying to rip off their brothers. They are the Jacobs that are trying to outsmart and outmanipulate Esau from what might rightly have been his. And, and so when you look at these guys, don't look at them in terms of what they become. Look at them in terms of what they are. And remember, this is the James and John who are with Jesus when he's headed for uh, this little Samaritan town. And because the Samaritans hear that Jesus is on his way, <laughs> you know, to, uh, to Judea, they give him grief. And James and John says, hey, Jesus, you want we should call down fire from heaven? These guys are hoods. Uh, and, you know, you just got to come to terms with that. And, and so keep that in your mind as we look at this text. These guys, this is not one of the favorite uh, portraits uh, that these guys would like to have themselves remembered by. Jesus in this text is Jerusalem bound, and he is explaining to his disciples just what that entails in verses 32 through 34. Now, as I read verse 32, I, I have to confess I get a little puzzled as to who the they are. Uh, they're walking on the road, and then they are amazed, and then those who followed are fearful. And, and I'm saying, who is who in this deal? You, in my opinion, you have to look at this in the light of a pilgrimage. And that's exactly what this is. Passover is coming. Thousands, some would say more than that, many, many thousands of people are flocking to Jerusalem. And one of the major routes that they would take is to come across uh, the Jordan, if they're Transjordan, but to come through Jericho and to work their way up that 18 miles or whatever. And many of you have been on that twisty, hilly, uh, barren road through the Judean wilderness on their way to Jerusalem. So Jesus, as I understand it, is with a, a fairly significant crowd of people. Jesus is at the head of, at least, uh, uh, the group of those who are with him. And, and, uh, and, and by the way, it's, it's also one of the ways, I think, that you've got to think about Jesus when he was a child of 12 and how he got lost in the caravan, and you realize that this is a fairly sizable group and people are kind of moving around and whatever. But some of those people, it says, were amazed. And I think it's the kind of wonder that we see, as you can look in, in Matthew 12, uh, verse 23, or in John, where there are people who are just saying, what, what is going on? Here is this one, he does all these miracles and whatever. Where is this going? And it's just sort of the amazement of wonder. They know something big is on its way, but they're really not sure where it's leading. Just just amazed, wondering at what the future will hold. 
I put that John 7 text in there because you remember that's where Jesus' brothers said to, to him, if you're going to make it big time, you've got to do it in Jerusalem. So go up there and make your presentation. And, uh, and then the people were, you know, saying, this must be the Messiah. And other people say, no, he can't be the Messiah. And everybody's scared to death of what the Jews are going to say, so they're not supposed to be talking about it. And you just have this whole sense of amazement, I think, amongst a certain segment. Others, we are told, those who were following him, were fearful. (laughs) Now, again, if you read in the Gospel of John, you know that Jesus has made a number of journeys to Jerusalem. And every one of them has not gone smoothly, if you want to use that expression. John chapter 2, after the wedding at Cana, he goes up to Jerusalem and cleanses the temple. That didn't win him any points with the Jewish religious leaders. John chapter 5, he, he heals the uh, man at the pool of Bethesda. And, and when the man is arrested for carrying his deal on the Sabbath, you know, then, then, uh, that gives him grief. And when Jesus finally comes on the scene uh, and they accuse Jesus of violating the Sabbath, Jesus ups the ante by saying, I'm just doing what my father does. And all of a sudden, he's now calling himself God. Didn't go well with the opposition. John chapter 7, Jesus comes and again, he is creating such a threat that the Jewish religious leaders send the temple police out to arrest Jesus and bring him in. And you remember the guys come back empty-handed and, and, and the leaders say to him, well, where is he? Well, we just never heard anybody talk like this before. Certainly not you, they were thinking in their minds. And so the leaders are not so happy. John chapter 9, you got the, the blind man who's given his sight. John chapter 11, Jesus now will go after a delay. He goes to Bethany, which is just a stone's throw away uh, from Jerusalem. And, uh, and when he goes, it's Thomas who says, well, guys, let's go and die with him. They understood the opposition was seething with anger. And that had been literally uh, stirred up by our Lord Jesus in his previous visits because he was orchestrating his own, his own sacrificial death for sinners like us. So there was fear, and my sense is those who were more closely identified with Jesus would sense fear in a higher level than those who were more distant from him because the followers are obviously going to catch it more than people who are just bystanders. But James and John seem different to me. They don't seem fearful at all. And again, these are the mafia boys who can call down fire from heaven, so it seems to me they're not shaking in their boots. In reality, I think they're chomping at the bit because they see this run to Jerusalem as the, as the commencement of Jesus finally coming out, as it were, from undercover, finally declaring himself, throwing the Roman rascals out. Uh, they weren't quite sure what was going to happen to the Jewish religious leaders, but this was the brink of something they thought was a huge success, and that meant all their stock in the Jesus company was going to pay off, right? The stock was going to split in the Jesus company. But didn't, then obviously that was another scenario and they didn't want to think about that. You have to keep these things in mind. Now, I'm going to come down hard on these guys, but I, I want to give them a little break by saying these things. One, 
in Luke chapter 9, it's very clear that in spite of just plain old-fashioned dullness, they were blinded. It says when Jesus talked about his coming death, they were blinded. They were kept from seeing where this was all going to go. So you have to give these guys credit. Yes, Jesus is saying three times, I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me. I'm going to rise from the dead. It is gone, folks. It is gone. That, that thought is not there. You know, Peter rebukes Jesus for it. And then the next instance in 931, they hear what he says, but they're not asking about it. And here, they're obviously thinking more sugar plum fairy thoughts, you know, like the night before Christmas than they are uh, the night that it really would be. James and John witnessed the transfiguration of our Lord. Now, J Peter, James, and John, right, were the three guys that witnessed the revelation of the future glory of our Lord. Not the other, not the other uh, disciples, just these three. Peter, James, and John. Now, I don't know where Peter gets uh, pushed out of the circle, but James and John, having seen the glory of our Lord, probably connected the dots and, and said this. You know, they were talking about the, 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 uh, the, what Jesus was going to do, the exodus that was coming about in Jerusalem. And they said to themselves, we saw this glory. We're going to Jerusalem. Surely Jerusalem is going to be glorious now that's that's reasonable now i have to tell you this how in the world they come up with a left chair and a right chair a first chair and a second chair i'm going to get after that in a minute but try this on for size i know it's awful i know it's typically my way of looking at things but there are three witnesses and three prominent people at the transfiguration. And Luke's account makes it clear. It isn't just Jesus who appears in splendor. It's, it's Moses and Elijah who appear in some kind of splendor as well. So I can see James and John saying to themselves, Hey, in glory there were three people. And then they're saying, What do you say we replace Moses and Elijah? Oh, we don't care. We'll take left chair, right chair. But you can see, can you not? Here they are in glory with Jesus. Three people. One with him on one side. One with him on the other. Why can't it be us? I can, I can actually see that as going through their minds. I'm just as depraved as they are. And it makes sense to me. They saw his future glory. They saw the two associates. And in Matthew chapter 19... Jesus had promised them 12 thrones. Is that not right? Remember, this is after the incident or at the end of the incident with a rich young ruler. Peter says to Jesus in that text, uh, look, we've left all to follow you. And Jesus says, you'll get your reward. In the kingdom, you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, I can envision them transporting that that mentality of 12 thrones and they're thinking of Jesus here and the thrones just circular fashion all the way around one's going to be on this side one's going to be on that side and all they're saying is we want to be there I don't think that's such a great reach so I can see where they got to their conclusion I can see how they connected their dots but they're wrong 
That's what Jesus has gonna, is going to say to us. Um, so Jesus takes his disciples aside. Now remember again, you're in this pilgrimage. You've got all these people and the crowds and whatever. Jesus now takes the disciples aside and says to them, Okay, guys, we're now on our way to Jerusalem. I'm going to tell you another time. Here's what's going to happen. Chapter 8, right after the great confession, he told them. In that instance, he gives a fairly brief synopsis, and that is, I'm going to Jerusalem, the religious leaders are going to reject me, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise the third day. In chapter 9 and verse 31, Jesus adds to that, the Son of Man is going to be handed over. Now you have the element of our Lord Jesus' betrayal. But this is really the jackpot of revelation, if you would, regarding the Lord's destiny in Jerusalem. Look at the things he says. A, it's going to happen in Jerusalem. Now, I know in the other texts, Matthew chapter 16, in the other text it says, in Jerusalem this will happen. In Mark's gospel, it is not until now that we are told... This bad stuff is happening in Jerusalem. So here they are, headed for Jerusalem, all the enthusiasm of the pilgrims, and Jesus is saying, you're right, but Jerusalem is where we're going, and here's what happens in Jerusalem. He says that he's going to be condemned by the religious leaders, but he's going to be turned over to the Gentiles. That's a new piece of revelation. The, the Jewish religious leaders are not going to be those who execute Jesus. They're going to condemn him, hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will put him to death. That, of course, is true as well, is it not? Is that not a, a, a more particular detail about our Lord's uh, suffering and death? I think it is. And, and finally, he says, he will be mocked, spit on, scourged, and killed. Now, I ask you this. If you were to take the shortest summary of what lay ahead for our Lord Jesus, could you do a better job of describing that than what Jesus has said in these few words? I think not. And, and uh, I've got progressive revelation uh, in, that, uh, in that note because it's an illustration, is it not, in the, uh, of the way in which greater and greater detail is given. As revelation proceeds, greater and greater, greater detail is given about what the future indeed uh, holds. Now, I call this the devious request of, of James and, and John. And I have to say, I, this, how would they have pulled this off? Well, I'm thinking about Jesus at, at, at the age of 12, uh, you know, getting lost from his parents. So you got a lot of crowd, a lot of people. But these dudes are really devious. Now, almost everywhere in Scripture that we see Peter and James, I'm sorry, everywhere in Scripture that we see James and John, we also see Peter, right? How did they ditch Peter? Well, come on, guys. Is that not true? Huh? They got to get Jesus aside by himself. They got to ditch Peter and they got to bring in Matthew, big mama, right? They got to get mama in there because she, all la Matthew, she's going to say, now Jesus, you know about my boys. So this thing is, is a contrived, manipulative thing 
But again, here are the 12 who are so used to traveling together, somehow they've managed to get Jesus off by himself, Peter off by himself, and, and now they got the two boys and mama putting the pitch to Jesus. And so far as I can see, it's not until later that the others learn of the deception and then they're madder than a wet hen. All right, I'm going to say it right now. This is the one time in the Gospels when I expect to hear from Peter. <laughs> this boy always has something to say. Would you not agree? Peter always has a word for the moment. Why are we not told anything? And by the way, he's one of the inner three. Of all the guys who got aced out, he got aced out more. All right, I'm going to tell you. I said these are bad dudes, didn't I? Maybe you couldn't print what he said. <laughs> Sorry, guys. But somehow, Peter's silence doesn't fit that character. Or maybe Mark just edited it out. Whatever it is, there it is. What do they request? They request a share of Jesus' glory. Now, I, I want to be careful how I say that. Because I think there's a sense in which we do become participants and benefactors of his glory. But, but I, I, all I can say is this. When you read Colossians and it says that he might have preeminence, there's a sense in which if you've got three chairs, I mean, isn't that the picture we've got? We've got three chairs back at, 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 in our old building. You remember we had what I called the queen's chair, and then, and then there was the sort of the peon's chairs that were next, and nobody sat in the queen's chair, including me. I didn't, I'm not sitting in any queen's chair. <laughs> and, and, and the, but it was, it was a level of exaltation. But if you've got three thrones, as it were, rather than one, then you've diminished the preeminence of the one. So to be sitting there with his glory, it seems to me, it is pretty presumptuous on their part that somehow they were to have a greater share of that than the others. I, I have to say, I don't think that's so good. The other is, they want to be granted the two highest positions in his new administration. Right? I mean, I don't know how else you read it, then uh, we want... First chair, second chair. These guys are so benevolent, and I guess they don't want to start a family fight, that they say to Jesus, you can pick which one gets where. But obviously the older's thinking, we all know the older gets the better chair. So that's what they're asking. What's wrong with the request? A, it ignores and disobeys Jesus' previous teaching in chapter 9 on leadership. Does it not? Chapter 9, he says, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. How does it fit for them to say to Jesus, we'd like to be first? <laughs> it's inconsistent. It literally blows off everything that Jesus has taught about humility and servanthood and leadership. It just throws it aside, as I understand the text. Their petition 
Oh, they wanted the power and the prestige that they could gain over others. If you're in first place and second place, it seems to me that that gives you something over everybody from third on down. They want position and power and prestige above their brothers. Thirdly, their petition is devious. Man, I mean, how do you read this and not get the devious part? They had to be sneaky in the way in which they got Jesus off to themselves, the way in which they pulled their mother into the scenario. Granted, Mark doesn't mention that, but it's part of the package. They, uh, they asked Jesus to make a commitment without knowing what it is. <laughs> I almost decided to say something about the health care legislation, but I decided I wouldn't. I won't go political today. But go ahead, trust me, Jesus. Say you'll give me whatever I'm going to ask, but don't ask me what it is. That's what they're saying to Jesus. And in Matthew's gospel, when mama's in the picture, they're saying, command that one of us sit at your right hand and one at your left. In other words, make it a decree that is not changeable. That's pretty devious stuff in my book. And by the way, one of the things you say, guys, do you not know Jesus knows everything that's going through your little puny heads? Do they think that they can actually get Jesus to commit to something he doesn't know? Oh, please. That's the level of delusion. Now, here's, here's my take on this. There is no number one and number two position in heaven. You show me anywhere in Scripture where it says... And especially in the New Testament where it says, and you're going to sit at my right hand, and you're going to sit at my left hand. Uh Uh-uh. And we have a little logistical problem. What we do see, if you want to look in your concordance, and you want to look up right hand and left hand, in the kingdom, who is sitting at whose hand? The Lord Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. That means God's on the left, right? Is James or John going to say to the Father, uh, that's my chair. <laughs> Did you just, you know, move it down? There is no first and second chair. There are rewards in heaven, but heaven isn't like that. Heaven isn't the pecking order, and it's all about Jesus in heaven. You want to talk about the 24 elders? They're just busy bowing down, folks. They're not grabbing chairs. So this whole thing is predicated on a false view of what the future holds, which is my next point. Their assumption is false because they believe Jerusalem is going to be happy days are here again. They believe that Jerusalem is going to be success. That's after three repeated specific revelations, I'm going there to die. And here they are asking for the glory chair. you got to say, folks, those dots don't connect. In my mind, at least. Notice, too, they make their request of the wrong person. Jesus says, what you are asking 
is not within my administrative uh, realm. You're asking me to do things that are the prerogative of the Father. That's another end run, folks. Now they're end running the Father. And then, it's contrary to divine predestination. Jesus says, where the, the whole realm of people's honor and all of that is really a matter that has been foreordained. What you're asking me to do is to, in effect, bypass and set aside the eternal plan of the Father so that I can just squeeze you in. That may work in Washington, D.C., folks, but it doesn't work in heaven. Let me tell you. Okay, I've gotten too political today. I'm sorry. It must be on a binge of some sort on that. All right. It's individualistic and competitive. When I read about heaven, I don't see this competitive mode. I see crowns. I see rewards. But when I look at heaven, I see all believers of all tongues and nations and whatever falling down before the Father. And the glory of heaven is for all of us. Is it not? It's for all of us. We all, with one voice, with one mind, with one heart, we bow down before the Father. This is a corporate thing, not an individual competitive thing. They've got it all wrong, so far as I can read the text. So Jesus has a lesson on leadership, verses 41 through 45. He takes the twelve aside. Again, if you think about this as a pilgrimage and a mass of people who were all on their way up for up toward Jerusalem, you can see how Jesus would have to get the disciples off to themselves. And, and we learned that the ten are just hopping mad. I mean, you can imagine, man, they have they have been outmaneuvered, whatever. And and the thing I think that makes them the maddest of all is is what they all would have liked to do. Remember, they were arguing, who is the greatest in the kingdom? Everybody wanted first chair. What made them mad is that James and John had outsmarted them to ask first. So Jesus takes the uh, twelve aside, and he has uh, words of correction for them. Now, this is really critical. Verse 42. Jesus characterizes the leadership style of Gentile kings and their cronies. Jesus characterizes the leadership style of Gentile kings and their cronies. Look at this verse. He says, And calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. Why the there? He's saying, when Gentile kings come to power, everybody has to have an administration, right? You have to have an, you have to have cabinet, whatever you call it, whatever you want. But but heathen kings have to set up some some administration, and I use the word cronies purposely, I guess. And by the way, remember. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, when, when the Israelites are demanding that they have a king, one of the things that Samuel says to him, you'll get a king, you'll also get his cronies, and you'll pay taxes for doing so. 
Isn't that what he says? So what he's saying is the cronies are going to do what their king does. Does that make sense? In fact, I, I thought of this uh, connection in Proverbs twenty nine twelve. If a ruler pays attention to falsehood, all his ministers become wicked. You know what that's saying? Like king, like crony. Or like crony, like king. You see the consistency between that power figure and those who exercise power underneath him. That's the way it works. So Jesus is saying, and by the way, he doesn't have to document this. I mean, every bit of experience, Herod, you name it. They looked around and they saw that's the way it works. One dictator and the guys under him are just little dictators exercising authority, running roughshod over, over people. That's the way it works. And of course, Jesus' point is, that's not the way it works in the kingdom of God. So he turns this thing upside down. And if I can jump to verse 45, that's where he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, if that is the principle that governs the way King Jesus rules. What does that mean for his cronies, if I can use that word, for the disciples? And right now it feels like it fits. What does that mean for his apostles and the way in which they'll rule? Does it not mean they are obliged to carry out the same character and conduct as their king? And if that's so, then they've got it all wrong. They're thinking of Gentile leadership and cronies rather than Jesus' leadership and their role in it. So Jesus says, that means your whole approach in terms of seeking power rather than seeking service, you haven't understood your king. And you know, and I know, that to this point they have not. They have not grasped why Jesus is going to Jerusalem. But it's all about servanthood. Here's blind Bartimaeus, the second request that Jesus will make. What do you want me to do for you? Well, I thought about a baseball headline, but I almost shouldn't tell you. Bartimaeus loses job as umpire. Ponder that for a while. <clears throat> Have you not? I, I remember when I was in band in high school and there was a referee made a call and I started playing three blind mice and, and the band leader almost wrapped that trumpet around my neck. But anyway, here's Bartimaeus as Jesus is passing through and he has a petition to make. Notice how well Bartimaeus is identified. Not only are we given his name, but his father's name. Man, you might as well have his email address. Isn't that right? Why do you suppose that's true? My sense is it's going to be 20 plus years from that point to when the Gospel of Mark is, is, is written. But my guess is Bartimaeus is still going to be around. And what, in effect, God is saying is, look him up. You remember that song that my, love, my wife loves so much and I love it too by the Booth Brothers? Uh, ask the blind man, he saw it all. Hey, here's, here's blind Bartimaeus. Ask him, in effect, I think we're told. Oh, incidentally, do you notice in Matthew chapter 20, there's two blind men. Not one, two blind men. 
which is consistent with Matthew because when you are looking in Mark's gospel at, at, the, uh, at the demoniac legion, the demoniac, and the demon is cast out of him, in Matthew's gospel there are two demoniacs. Now, the way I understand it personally is Mark has chosen to focus in on one rather than to divert the attention to two, and no doubt Bartimaeus is the more vocal and I would say the more aggressive one in this, and so Mark uh, sorts him out. Here's the request. And, and you've got to think about this now in contrast to what we've just read about the petition of James and John. It's public. I mean, can you imagine, can you imagine any more public request? Jesus, son of David, you know, yelling out, and everybody's saying, shut up, shut up. Guy saying, I'm not going to shut up. He's yelled top his look. There wasn't anybody within shouting distance that didn't know what was going on. And you can see James and John over kind of talking in lowered tones to Jesus. Well, we got this request we'd like to make. Not Bartimaeus, man. Everybody knows what's going on. It's persistent, right? The crowd is not for him. I got to tell you, the crowd just makes me sizzle. The crowd is telling him to shut up. And I, I suspect they're not really very polite in doing that. And then when Jesus says, call him here, then they say, take courage, man, take courage. The Lord's calling for you. Oh, shut up. These guys don't care about Bartimaeus. What hypocrites. Anyway, so here you have this persistency. But notice how he addresses the Lord Jesus. Son of David and Rabboni. In other words, oh, and you know what James and John started their petition with, do you not? Teacher. Teacher, we have a request we'd like to make of you. We don't want to tell you what it is, just like to have you commit to it. Teacher. This guy's saying, son of David. My friends, I don't know how you would more clearly say, Jesus Messiah, my master, help me. This guy's got it right. He understands. It's a request for mercy, not for a favor. Boy, there's a world of difference here, friends. A favor plays on a relationship. Do you ask people for favors that you don't know and who don't know you? Ah, you know better. You lean on the relationship. James and John were asking for a favor. This man's asking for mercy. And by the way, that is right up Jesus' alley. Is it not? Mercy is what he's about. That he's on the right frequency. What he requests is that which will glorify the Lord Jesus. When this thing is all said and done, Jesus gets the glory. Not Bartimaeus. What's he going to get? The word for the loudest hollerer in the city of Jericho? Jesus gets the glory. See, the disciples wanted a piece of the glory. They weren't really saying glory to you, in my opinion. And here's the big one. His request is completely consistent with our Lord's earthly mission. This is what Jesus was about. Do you see the discrepancy between James and John? Their request is totally at odds with Jesus' mission. In Jerusalem, his mission was to die, not to put people on thrones. You remember that 
in Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist, he's beginning to wonder why Jesus isn't doing the things, you know, sizzling people with fire and all the things that he had said was going to happen. And he says, you know, if I got this right, Jesus sends word back and he says, tell them what I'm doing. And one of the things that he was doing that proved he was Messiah was sight to the blind. Luke chapter 4, Jesus comes, introduces himself at the synagogue of Nazareth and quotes Isaiah 61. And that text is saying, Messiah, when he comes, among other things, is going to give sight to the blind. This man is dead center on what Jesus is about. And therefore, it shouldn't be shocking to us that Jesus grants his request. Here's some things to think about by way of application. How many times have you ever heard somebody say, you know, everybody can manipulate the Bible to make it mean whatever they want. The Bible means whatever you want it to mean. It doesn't have any particular meaning. It just means what you like it to mean. Now, this text explains to us why that is true. See, what James and John have done is to take the revelation Jesus has given them and torque it to fit within their self-serving, sinful plans and somehow try to make Jesus adapt to them. They were connecting dots, folks, but they weren't connecting the right dots. And I'll even go further than that. They were excluding dots. Mark 8.31, Mark 9.31, and Mark 10. 33 and 34. What Jesus had come to do in Jerusalem. They missed that. The dot that says service, leadership is service and servanthood prompted by humility. That's on Jesus' wavelength. That went out the window too. They had snatched bits and pieces from God's plan and promise and connected those dots to reach their goals. But I have to tell you, the plan is clear, folks. It isn't that the Bible is somehow obscure about what's going to happen in Jerusalem. It's, it's the sinful heart of men that take the clear teaching of God's Word and make it mean something other than it does. That doesn't diminish the Scriptures. It diminishes men, if I understand it right. So Bartimaeus rightly connects the dots. He knows who Jesus is, and he knows what Jesus as Messiah is about. And his request is right down the middle of it. No wonder. Jesus grants it. James and John wrongly connected the dots. They excluded a lot. Some of it they were blinded from seeing. They were motivated by selfish ambition. And they arranged the dots in a way that seemed to fit them. Oh, i got to tell you this. Here's the humor. <laughs> Connecting dots. I'm all about that. James gets his request. Where? Name the chapter and book. Acts chapter 12. James, the brother of John, is first to die for Jesus Christ. That's what the text tells us. James, the brother of John, is the first of the disciples 
to die for faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't that funny? He, they say, Jesus, Jesus, we want to be first. We want to have your cup first. Jesus says to James, okay, partner, it's yours. Now, the cup isn't quite the cup he's thinking about. But when you look at that from an eternal point of view, James wins. Does he not? Man, he gets cuts to glory. <laughs> not the way he planned on, but the way God did. And when you look at John, in 3 John chapter 9, remember he talks about Demetrius, or Diotrephes, I'm sorry. And he basically says, here's a man in the church who wants to have preeminence. Isn't it interesting that John would be the guy to warn about that? <laughs> you know, I think the reason why our Lord does that is because just like Peter, when he says to Peter, you're going to deny me. But when you have returned, strengthen your brothers. Jesus didn't like arrogance in his servants. And so he picks those who fail to talk about the things they've learned in their failure. Well, that's James and, and John. So I'm saying to you that I think one of the reasons that our prayers are not answered is because we don't connect the dots. See, I think that there is assurance of answered prayer when we are thinking God thoughts, God's thoughts, when we are pursuing God's goals, and we are asking in accordance with God's heart. James and John weren't. So they don't get it. Bartimaeus was. James says, you know, if you ask and your prayers aren't answered, you may be asking amiss. I would say you're not connecting the dots related to what you ask. So I would say this. The governing principle by which we ought to connect the dots of Scripture is the cross. Uh, that my contention is, if you want an organizing principle, if you want a principle by which you sort it all out, then take the cross. That's really the center of what it's all about. Genesis chapter 3. This descendant of Eve is going to crush Satan's head, but he's going to bruise his heel. What do you think the bruise is? It's the cross. All the way through the Old Testament, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53 and 54, or 52 and 53, it's all about the cross of our Lord Jesus. It's no wonder that Paul says, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, paraphrased, I'm old Johnny One Note. All I do is talk about Jesus and Jesus crucified. My message is the cross of Christ. And in Galatians, he says, if anybody turns away from the cross of Christ, it's heresy. The cross of Christ is the central theme. It's the guiding theme. And, and that's why I'm jumping up and down, because the prosperity gospel calls that a lie. The prosperity gospel says, God wants you to have what James and John were asking for. God wants you to have a crown now. God wants you to have no cross. That's heresy. The cross is the organizing, governing principle of our lives. And we don't go there often enough. But when we do, folks, and every week we drink the cup, we drink the cup of our Lord's suffering. And we are saying to him, not only do I partake of that cup 
as the means by which you have saved me. I drink of that cup as the cup which I too must drink for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in the advancement of his kingdom. Last point. Christian culture and society is far too individualistic and it is far too competitive. But when you look at places like Ephesians chapter 4, when it's talking about the unity of the body and then it says, until the whole body is grown up, we ask ourselves, well, how am I doing in my discipleship? How am I doing in my devotions? How am I doing in comparison to other people? The Bible says, why don't you think about being a part of the body and about how the whole body grows up? First Corinthians is about individuality. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of, you know, all these people. That's where my identity lies. But by the time you get to First Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says to believers, you are a part of a body and you are desperately interdependent with one another. The I can't say to the foot, get lost. I have no need of you. We are interdependent. And the strengths that God gives to us are not strengths that we use to gain status above others. They are the strengths that God gives us to minister to the weakness of others. That's what the cross is about. And that's what the disciples at this point in the, in the game don't get. So let me leave you with this question. What do you want Jesus to do for you? What do you want Jesus to do for you? Think about that this week. Thank you, Father, for this great text and for this great Savior. Thank you for his cross. May we take up our cross, trusting in you alone, to bring you the glory. In Jesus' name. Amen.